When the Lord Jesus was carrying out his ministry on earth, one of his main functions was to teach the divine truth. And in the Gospel of Matthew, the truth presented by the Lord Jesus focused on the kingdom of the heavens. And again and again, as we know, he referred to the Father who is in the heavens. So clearly, the Lord's word is showing to us in addition to the physical universe, to the earth on which we are living in space-time, there is another realm. It cannot be located in the space-time universe. You can't get in a rocket and journey so many light years and land in heaven. When Stephen, our brother, was being martyred, he saw the heavens opened. So there is another realm beyond space-time, but it is a reality. We need to be delivered from our mind shaped by the claim that's all there is, is the physical universe. Our spirit is able to sense another dimension, another realm. Otherwise, what would be the meaning of the words, our Father, who is in the heavens? What would be the meaning of the expression, the heavens rule? Way back in Daniel <coughs> chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar was disciplined by the God of heaven and earth for his arrogance. And he lost his mind for a period of time. But eventually he learned a lesson that he is not the top man. He said, the heavens rule. And this in recent days has meant very much to me personally and in the present world situation. There is a realm higher than the physical realm of space and time. And our Father, our divine source, that is his dwelling. When the Lord ascended, as we will see from Hebrews, he as the God-man entered into that realm. I don't know how else to put it. There's just no way we can grasp it. I'm thinking of Stephen again. When he was just filled with the Spirit and living out a life that was a reproduction of the Lord. The heavens were open. It's as if the veil of space-time was parted. 
and he could see into this other realm. I repeat, it's not a distant location in the physical universe. That would make it physical. It is something that's a reality that transcends this universe of space and time. And the book of Hebrews is unique in all the epistles in emphasizing the heavenly ministry of Christ and of revealing numerous aspects of Christ's person in his heavenly ministry. And then this epistle shows the relationship between the ascended Christ, his heavenly ministry, and our present human situation on earth, our journey as believers running the race, and as those practicing the church life. So our subject, our general subject, is on practicing the church life under the heavenly ministry of Christ. And shortly we'll come to outline two, which focuses on one aspect of Christ in ascension, and that is Christ as the minister, the heavenly minister. But I believe it will enrich our spiritual understanding and ground us in the truth if we took a little walk through the epistle of Hebrews and pause at different verses and I'll read them to you that we can get a peek of an aspect of Christ as he is now in this other realm. In chapter 1, verse 3, we read this, referring to the Son, who, being the effulgence of his, God's glory, and the impress of his substance, and upholding all things by the word of his power, having made purification of sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. There's a reality called the majesty on high. Our God is majestic. He's grand <clears throat> and glorious. <clears throat> and the Lord Jesus made purification of sins once for all. Once for all, according to 9.14, he offered himself to God through the Spirit. This sacrifice does not need to be repeated. It is actually an insult to claim that the so-called Mass is a reenactment of this. It happened once for all. 
We know from chapter 2, while the Lord was making purification for sins, he destroyed the devil who has the power of death. This morning, I'd like to remind the creep, he has been destroyed by the God-man Jesus. So now the Lord sat down indicating the first phase of his ministry has been completed. And he is in the highest position in the universe, the right hand of the majesty on high. Then in chapter 2, we have an emphasis on the humanity of Jesus. And there's a quotation of Psalm 8 regarding the place of man in God's economy. And starting with verse 8, I read, You have subjected all things under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing unsubject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subject to him. That's right. We see a lot of chaos going on. There'll be more protests all over the land, protesting taxes. A lot of things are not subjective to him. But listen, we do not see all things subject to him, but we see Jesus. We see Jesus. Well, let's consider this. We can't physically see Jesus right now. But Paul says we see Jesus who was made a little lower, a little inferior to the angels, crowned with glory and honor. Let's ponder this. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. This must mean that when we turn to our spirit and exercise the fellowship function and the intuition function of our spirit, we have a spiritual seeing. Right now, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. So our Lord Jesus, Jesus is at the right hand of the majesty on high. When you call Lord Jesus, you are contacting the God-man who has the highest authority in the universe. Then this chapter goes on to speak of another aspect in verses 16 and following. For assuredly, it is not to angels that he gives help. But he gives help to the seed of Abraham. Hence, he should have been made like his brothers in all things. Made like you and me in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest 
in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for being tempted in that which he himself has suffered, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Here he is called a merciful and faithful high priest. There was a period of time in the 1940s where there was an internal rebellion in China against the ministry of our brother, Watchman Nee. And for several years, he had to stop his ministry. He couldn't minister. Then there was a turn, a real repentance, and his ministry was resumed. And there's a book that we put out on messages given during the resumption of Watchman Nee's ministry. And the first message in that book is on mercy. And this message touches us deeply. Brother Nee points out there needs to come a time in your life, at least one time, when you realize everything depends on God's mercy. Not only his grace. There are times when, honestly, we don't have the boldness to claim grace. Our failure is too big. Our weakness is just too pronounced. We can hardly lift our head. But there is a merciful priest in the heavens. Amen. Merciful. Merciful. I'm not recommending this as a practice. I'm just expressing a feeling. I would be content after every Lord's table meeting to worship the Father with hymns on mercy. So in his humanity, he's a merciful high priest. In his divinity, he's a faithful high priest. He was made like us in all things except sin. He knows what it is to live a human life on earth. He still knows. So we can express to him anything at any time about what we're feeling or going through, and he listens, and he immediately ministers. A merciful and faithful high priest. At the beginning of chapter 3, Therefore, holy brothers, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus. Again, he mentions Jesus, the man Jesus. You know what? Jesus is Lord. Amen. Jesus. Amen. 
And he was the apostle sent from God to bring God to us. And he's now the high priest bringing us to God. In chapter 4, verse 14. Having therefore a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast the confession. This is written to suffering believers. Their families were pressuring them, leave the church, return to Judaism, join us at the Feast of the Tabernacles. Why are you meeting in all these homes with this group of people? You don't have the ceremonies, you don't have the temple, you don't have anything. But the writer says, we have a great high priest. Hold fast your confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our weaknesses. Aren't these precious words? He not only knows our weaknesses, he's touched with the feeling of our weaknesses. With all of our weaknesses as humans, there's a particular feeling associated with them. And the feeling is almost impossible to communicate, to explain to someone who hasn't felt that. He just can't. But when, somehow in fellowship, you meet someone who understands that feeling because they've been there, then you can open your being and the river of life flows again. Well, it may seem that our high priest is far, far away, even above the heavens, but he's touched with the feeling of our infirmities, our weaknesses. One who has been tempted in all respects like us, yet without sin. Actually, he experienced much more. Let's consider a heavyweight championship fight of 15 rounds, okay? We all get knocked out in the first minute of the first round. He's still standing at the end of round 15, and he just KO'd the devil. Amen. So in other words, he knows what it's like to fight all 15 rounds. Much, much more than we could know. So it's very, to me, endearing to have a little realization of the kind of person he is and how much feeling he has for us all the time about anything. As soon as you feel it, he feels it. But he doesn't feel it, and then all he can do is kind of 
identify with us, he immediately ministers, prays, shepherds, supplies, administrates, fights on our behalf. Don't you want to know him in this way? Then in chapter 5, in verse 6, we have a mysterious expression in verse 6, even as also in another place he says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. I don't think anyone is here named Melchizedek. Any of you named your little boy Melchizedek? I don't think so. I don't know what would be a, a nickname, maybe Mel. <laughs> Melchizedek. I'm not suggesting as a name. I'm just saying someone had this name. A high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This is worthy of a little explanation. Way back in Genesis 14, when Abraham found out that his nephew Lot and others in their possessions had been seized by certain kings. Abraham and a few hundred of his trained men, he had some special forces ready for this. And they went and fought and recovered everyone and everything. Then suddenly a person appeared a priest and a king called the King of Salem, the King of Peace. He was a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He was a priest. This is the first mention of a priest in the Bible. And he indicated that he had been praying for Abraham and his fighters. And then he came and ministered bread and wine to Abraham. And Abraham gave him the tithe. So we don't know where this Melchizedek came from. There's no record of his parents. Now in Psalm 110, and then fulfilled in Hebrews, we have a word concerning Christ as this kind of priest. When our Lord died on the cross, he fulfilled the priesthood of Aaron. That's the priest who offered sacrifices for sins. That was a kind of type or symbol. When the Lord offered himself, he was that kind of priest. But now in his heavenly ministry, he is a great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And he wants to come to us with bread and wine, signifying the processed God for our food and enjoyment. He'd like to come to you and serve you living bread to strengthen you and wine 
to cheer you from Psalm 104. Tomorrow, in this very place, we will have the Lord's table meeting to remember the Lord and to declare his death. On the table will be the unleavened bread, a loaf, that will be broken and distributed. There will be a cup. These are outward symbols, I assure you. Just as now, our Lord is here in this meeting. He's present. He's Emmanuel. He is God with us. He will be here to minister himself to us. So when the plate with the bread comes to you and you take a fragment and when the substance of the cup is put into your little cup, these signify the process God in Christ being ministered to you to sustain you for another week. Amen. This is our high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And toward the end of chapter 6, in verse 20, he's called the forerunner. The forerunner, Jesus. He's entered within the veil. That's in verse 19. Having become a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, the name Jesus is used. Because Jesus is the first one among us to enter into glory as the forerunner. He did this on our behalf to open the way for all of us to be where he is. So the forerunner is the one who went ahead to pay the price to open the way. And interesting, in the previous verse, we read about an anchor within the veil. We all know an anchor is a weight to keep a boat in place. It implies we're on some kind of journey. It implies the need for stability. Because we will face a lot of storms, the threatening waves. But there's an anchor already within the veil. Our anchor is within the veil. No matter how much in the physical realm we're being tossed, we're not going to capsize. And we're not going to drown. And we're not going to be shipwrecked. Because our forerunner is within the veil as the anchor, and I believe he's cheering us on, praying for us to go on. Amen. Wonderful person. In chapter 7, we see this in verse 25. Hence he is able, this is Christ as a high priest, to save to the uttermost. Wouldn't you like to be saved to the uttermost? Yeah. Is there anything just right now you'd like to be saved from? Well, we're going to be saved to the uttermost. Okay. 
he is able to save to the uttermost those who come forward to God through him since he lives always to intercede for them. In the Old Testament, the priest died, the garments were taken off, put on another. But Christ's priesthood is eternal because it's based on an indestructible life and he lives always to intercede for us. Right now, as we're gathering here, he's interceding for us. I believe I am physically alive because he prayed, Amen. because he interceded. Amen. I believe I made the decision in June 1966 to leave the totality of the religious system, all of Christianity, and follow the Lord to California because I had the leading. I believe I made that decision because he prayed for us. I believe that 20 years ago, when we suffered the loss of our dear brother Lee, and the whole recovery had to make a turn, we made it victoriously Amen. because he prayed for us. Amen. I believe last year, when my life was wonderfully changed in five minutes, he was praying. He is always interceding. Always for all of us. Because he's God, he can pray for all of us at the same time. And never get tired. Because he's a man, he understands our human situation. So verse 26 says, For such a high priest was always fitting to us, holy, guileless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and having become higher than the heavens. I, I don't know what this means. Higher than the heavens. He's higher than the heavens, but he's fully aware of everything going on and fully involved with it. But he likes to be hidden and give the impression that, oh, no, there's no God. There's no Christ. Nothing's going on. There's just the physical universe. Let, let the, the, the foolish, ungodly people stay in their materialistic view. But now to us little ones, he's showing us, oh, there's another realm. There's a wonderful person there. And actually, we are there with him, and he is here with us. Amen. Then a few more. Then we'll come to the outline, chapter 8. Paul reaches the point where he wants to um, make clear what he's saying in verse 1. Now in the things which are being said, the chief point is this, okay? We have such a high priest 
who sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. We have such a high priest. And as I'm standing here, there's just a prayer from my spirit passing through my heart for all of you that you would know you have such a high priest. Amen. Wonderful. Then we'll come back to verse 2, yet I'll read it again. A minister of the holy places, even of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. So if someone asks, well, what church do you go to? You could say, uh, the. Okay. I, I go to the. And if you ask, who is the minister? We say, do you have a minister? You say, yes. Who is he? Well, it's the high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, <laughs> in the heavens. He's ministering to us right now. We have a minister. Chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ did not enter into a holy place made by hands, a figure of the true, but into heaven itself to appear now before the face of God for us. Right now. He's in the heavenly holy of holies. The high priest in the Old Testament had the names of God's people on the breastplate and on his shoulders. Right now, he is before the face of God for us. Your name is on his heart. Your name is on his shoulder. He's standing there before the face of God for us. How precious to even have a little teeny glimpse of this. As we're gathering here, we're not just simply reading a verse in the book of Hebrews. This verse unveils a reality the God-man Jesus, our high priest, right now is appearing before the face of God for us. The Apostle John knew this. At the beginning of chapter 2 of his first epistle, he said, My children, I write these things to you that you may not sin. But if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So here's what's going on. The Lord is appearing before the face of God for us. Then he and the Father realizes, uh-oh, he did it. He sinned. Then the high priest becomes our defense attorney, the advocate. He's the righteous one. He can say, Father, yes, he did it. But I bore that sin. I dealt with that sin. So you have to forgive him. So let's flow into him. Enlighten him. So he confesses and says he's sorry. And then I'll remind you. You have to forgive him. 
because you're righteous. This is what's going on. There's not a heavenly CIA gathering data on you to spring it on you at the day of judgment, keeping this record and not letting you know. And then now we're, we're all there at, at the judgment seat hoping for mercy to be overcomers. And the Lord says, I remember every word, every thought, every reaction. I recorded everything. I got a file here. Now I'm going to spring it out to you. Okay, the one who does that, his name is Satan. Our Lord is taking care of us so that we can clear now everything we would need to clear then. We have an advocate, not a prosecutor, an advocate. What a wonderful person. We need to know we have such a wonderful person. Then two other portions. In chapter 12, looking away unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. In the previous verse, he says we need to run with endurance the race set before us. And if we are to run and finish like an overcomer, we have to learn something. Look away. Look away, oh look away. Look to Jesus now today. Look away from everything unto Jesus. Look away from everything to him. I was sharing on this with the, in a ministry meeting in Anaheim, especially to the trainees. And I said, there's no problem so big, you can't look away from it. Then I said, I wish there had been a Peanuts cartoon along this effect. And a few days later, I found in my slot in the training center, some artistic trainee drew a picture of Charlie Brown <laughs> lying on the ground. And Lucy, or maybe it's Linus over him, just saying, Charlie Brown, no problem is too big to be looked away from. <laughs> now, the biggest problem to be looked away from is ourself. Look away. Just look away to the author and perfecter of faith. Remember when the disciples were in the boat at night and the Lord is walking and they think it's a ghost. He said, it is I. Give Peter some credit. He said, Lord, if it's you, speak the word, and I'll get out of the boat and come to you. He wasn't presumptuous. He didn't say, I'm coming out. He said, speak the word, 
Well, we don't have this on literal video, but we have it in the video of the word. He got out of the boat and he's walking on the water. But then he starts to, what am I doing? <laughs> he looks at the wind and he begins to sink. It, our heavenly high priest has as one of his objectives to develop and perfect our faith. One of the characteristics of the prepared bride is a mature development of faith and love. So the Lord is the author of faith. Now we're going to go through all kinds of experiences for him to develop and perfect our faith. And so there are going to be things in the round that we can see. And you look at those things, you sink. You sink. There's just no faith. There's no God. There's nothing but this problem. But when this word becomes living in us, you look away. And that Greek verb is very strong. Look away from any distracting object unto Jesus he infuses faith, and you can keep on running. I was um, with a brother in Atlanta, and I noticed in the back of his car, he had these two ovals, and each one said 13.1, 13.1. I said, what's that? He said, that's for a half marathon. But he ran twice this half marathon. <clears throat> and he, he said he wasn't competing against anyone. The real experts, they finished the marathon before he finished his half marathon. He said, my only goal was to keep running and finish. Well, that's what Paul did. Where he could say, I finished the course. Keep running and finish. The way we can do that is look away unto Jesus. Now, the last matter, and then we'll return to the outline, is in many ways the most important one. Chapter 13, verse 20. Now, the God of peace, he who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. So in his heavenly ministry, he has so many statuses. But the last one mentioned in the book is the shepherd of the sheep. Sheep have <clears throat> a particular ability. They're very good at getting lost. <clears throat> and sometimes as a little joke on myself, I point out that I have a gift. I have a gift. It borders on the supernatural, the miraculous. I can get lost anywhere at any time <laughs> driving. It's quite amazing. So like a sheep, all we like sheep have gone astray. But we have a shepherd who looks for us until he finds us. He, do you have just some impression 
of this wonderful person. We have the all-inclusive Christ with his unsearchable riches dwelling in us as the life-giving spirit. We cannot overemphasize this. Christ is in us. But if we are to be balanced and if we are to be overcomers and if we are to finish the race, if we are to faithfully practice the church life and build up the body of Christ, we need to also know the heavenly Christ, the Christ in his ascension. We need the word to shine into us. We need the ministry to interpret the word to us. Then we need the spirit to apply the word to us. And we realize Christ is in us. Christ is on the throne. The Lord is with our spirit. The Lord is at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is governing the whole universe. He is causing all things to work together for good. And what we want to see now as we go through the outline is that Christ is the minister in the true, the heavenly tabernacle. And as this minister, he wants to transmit into us a marvelous heavenly supply all the time. Okay, all the time. Just as your blood is circulating in your body all the time, you're breathing all the time. So he is aware of our outward situation, of our inward situation, of the church's situation, of the world's situation. But he is actively ministering. What he needs is for his believers, especially those in the church life, to respond to him, to be open to him, to cooperate with him, to coordinate with him. So now we go through this outline. <clears throat> the ascended Christ is a minister of the holy places, even of the true tabernacle. <clears throat> when Moses was on that mountain with the Lord, God gave him detailed instructions on how to make the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And what was made out of that physical material was an image of the heavenly reality. There is a heavenly reality. And God told Moses, make everything according to the pattern shown on the mountain. So in the church life, there is no room for our opinions and our preferences because this is the house of God. He is the architect and the builder. He and only he has the right to determine the design, the layout, whatever. So that physical tabernacle 
eventually enlarged to be the physical temple, was a symbol of a sign of a heavenly reality. The high priest in the Old Testament, once a year, with the blood of the sin offering, would enter the holy place and then enter the veil into the holy of holies where the glory of God literally was. The glory was there. Christ, when he ascended, entered into the heavenly holy of holies, the real tabernacle, the real thing. This is where he is. And he is here in this tabernacle as a minister. On the one hand, he's ministering to God, but primarily, on the other hand, he's ministering to us. You just consider what took place at the beginning of Acts. Our Lord died at the age of 33 and a half. Certainly those apostles were younger than he was. Could very well have been in their 20s. He trained them for three and a half years. He set up an exam for all of them to fail because that's the only way they could be dealt with. He even used the enemy to, to shake them. Then he recovered all of them, appeared to them off and on for 40 days, talking about the kingdom, and then he left. He ascended. They watched him go. And then he's saying, you know what? I'm leaving the whole thing to you guys. There's some older ones with you. My mother is there. There'll be a few older ones. I'm leaving the whole enterprise mainly to 120 young adults. This is just his way. I'm not, I'm, that's just a historical fact. I'm not limiting the function to any age group. I would never do that. It just shows how radical a move this was. And more or less he's saying, I'm only leaving you physically. I want you to recognize from the heavens, I will be directing everything and everyone and supplying everything and anyone. And just consider some of the things that happened in Acts. The Lord had told them, you need to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And they were good at being his witnesses in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. Really in Jerusalem. They weren't going anywhere. So they needed something to motivate them. And that was the martyrdom of Stephen and a severe persecution driving all the saints out except the apostles. They stay there 
That's the ministry center, and they stay there to continue the sufferings. Then there's the spread. Then in chapter 12, James and John had asked the Lord, prompted by their ambitious mother, uh, Lord, um, we'd like you to do us a favor. Yeah? We want to be on your right and on your left in the kingdom. Forget the other ten. <laughs> and the mother is saying, my boys, I want my boys in the right and the left. And the Lord said, can you drink my cup? Can you be baptized with my baptism? They said, we're able. He said, you will. You will. But it's not for me to promise who will be there. That's prepared by the Father. So in chapter 12, James was killed. The Lord didn't prevent that. He's not the God of prevention. He's the God of resurrection. Amen. Certain things he will not prevent. He didn't prevent the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen was the seed to gain Saul. James was a seed because the outflow went out of Antioch because of the price paid in Jerusalem. But Peter was in prison. The enemy was about to kill him. But that was not the way and that was not the time for Peter to go. So the church, especially under the lead of an experienced sister named Mary, they prayed powerfully for him. Then an angel came, poked Peter in the side and said, wake up, we're going out of here. The gate's open, he's on a street. He realizes, this is amazing, but this really happened. So you just see all the way through Acts, the ascended Christ, directing especially the spread, the gospel preaching, the propagation. So it's really the acts of the ascended Christ through the apostles. And so these dear ones realize the connection between their very active move on the earth and what Christ is doing in the heavens. Last night we mentioned about being in two realms at once, okay? How about this for the physical realm? You're in Philippi, and then the opposers beat your back till it's bloody, then you're thrown into prison. That's physical. And your wrists and your feet are in stocks. That's physical. Then what are Paul and his co-worker doing? They're singing hymns of praise to the Lord. They're singing. No one has treated their wounds. There's nothing in the physical realm to cheer them. They're touching something transcendent. 
What enabled them to sing? Do you think they're a bunch of heroes? No, there aren't any heroes. The Lord was praying for them. The Lord was supplying them. The Lord was transfusing into them. So the songs break out. I sometimes said a few times, if ever I'm in prison for the gospel's sake, I want Dick Taylor as a cellmate. <laughs> you help me sing my way out of here. So Christ, as a minister of the true, the heavenly tabernacle, ministers heaven, which is not only a place, but also a condition of life into us. He wants to minister a condition of life into us. And the only way to grasp this is to have some experience. We should just ask for it. Lord, make real to me your ministering of heaven as a condition of life. There is just in you and about you an atmosphere. There's just an atmosphere. Right in the midst of whatever's happening, right in that prison cell in Philippi, a heavenly condition of life was ministered. And I love that verse. It says, and the prisoners were listening to them. Well, yesterday, my wife and I were not in prison. But I recommended to her the hymn for this week on God's faithfulness. So we, she said, let's sing it. Then the dear lady came in to clean the room. We just kept on singing. <laughs> then she walked by and said, very nice, very nice. <laughs> These are words on a page, but they point to a reality. Look at point B. The present Christ, who is now in the heavens as our minister, is ministering to us the heavenly life, the heavenly grace, the heavenly authority, the heavenly power. And he's sustaining us. Don't you sense the need to be sustained? We're running a long super marathon, sustaining us to live a heavenly life on earth as he did when he was here. Okay, let's consider Acts 27 and Acts 28. There is this severe storm. Paul, Paul said he's, he's a prisoner there. He has no status. But he says, I don't think we should make this voyage. We're in for big trouble. But the others said, ah, the weather's fine. Uh, we can make it to such and such a place before winter. Let's go. Then everything is nice to think, yeah, we were right. This guy was wrong. And then the powerful storm comes. Lasted for days. They couldn't tell night from day. Pause on the boat. After several days, he stands on the deck. You know what he says? Cheer up, everybody. <laughs> Cheer up. 
Doesn't it gall you? Someone would say something like, cheer up. He said, look, the God whom I serve sent his angel to me to assure me I've got to get to Rome. The Lord told me I'm going to Rome. I'm going to make it to Rome. And we're all going to make it. We are going to lose the ship. Okay. But we're all going to make it. And then he went on to say, you haven't eaten for days. So he took bread. There are about 250 plus people on this ship. This is a prisoner. He takes bread and he prays over it and he blesses it. And then the others are cheered up. And they began to jettison everything, throw everything over. They're cheered up. Then some decide to try to lower this little boat under the pretense of checking the anchors. And Paul says, if you do that, you're going to perish. Let that boat go. I wonder who's in charge here. <laughs> then the boat runs aground. So the word is, if you can swim, dive in. If not, hold on to something. So now I really like this. I enjoy telling you this with a little, a little bit of flair, I admit. But I think it will be pleasant. <laughs> they're, not, they're now all on the shore, drenched and cold and hungry. So they make a fire. And what is Paul doing? He's gathering sticks for the fire. And when he's gathering sticks, a snake bites him on the hand and is now hanging from his hand. And the natives, they're watching. So their first opinion poll is, he must be a murderer, that fate will now deal with him, even though he survived the shipwreck. Okay, now there are different reactions we can have to a snake hanging from our hand. <laughs> okay, one is <clears throat> the self-pity reaction. Why does everything happen to me? <laughs> I've just been through this storm, and now I have a snake <laughs> hanging from my hand. Or there could be the panic reaction. A snake! A snake! <clears throat> there could be the fatalistic reaction, in which you say, well, I guess this, this is how we go. <laughs> We're not going to make it after all. Or there could be the Benny Hinn TV evangelist supernatural <laughs> reaction, saying, a snake? I have the power of God, which is great. I twirl the snake around. I throw it on the ground and step on it. Paul did none of the above. He just shook it off. So then the native people conducted another poll, and they said, um, we think you're a god. He was not affected by anything. How could he do that? To be in a storm like that? He had health problems of his own. Luke was there. 
largely to take care of him. And he didn't confront the natives and say, what was it you called me before? You want to say that again, man? <laughs> huh? It didn't bother him. Then there's a classic note in Acts chapter 28 in the beginning. From Brother Lee, who had the spiritual understanding, he said, this is Jesus living again Amen. in one of his members. How could he do that? It's because while the storm is raging, while the serpent is biting, there's another realm that's observing everything. A ministry is taking place. A heavenly life, a heavenly atmosphere, grace, power, authority are being supplied to him. Then Residents gave hospitality. You found out, oh, the father of one of them is sick of dysentery. Paul, who didn't heal his own co-workers because they're under the discipline of the inner life. He healed him. Many others came. He healed them all. Then when it was time to get on another ship, the native people came with food and supply. Such a testimony. And Luke is there. Faithful Luke, recording everything so that we would see not only in the Gospels the first God-man living the God-man life, but we see a man who was breathing out murder against us, who wanted to annihilate us, who called himself the greatest sinner because in this sense he was, and according to 1 Timothy 1.16, he received mercy to be a pattern to all those who believe. This is a person who eventually wrote Hebrews because he lived under the ministry of this heavenly Christ and he wants us to know this is normal and this is for all of us all the time. See, the heavenly Christ is ministering in the tabernacle which the Lord pitched not man. This tabernacle, this sanctuary is in the third heaven, in which is the heavenly holy of holies. The heavenly holy of holies, where Christ is ministering in our behalf, is connected to our spirit. Christ's ministry in the heavens takes care of our need. Not our want, but our need. Parents of teenagers are learning how to deal with this. The child wants something to say, I need it. And you discern, you don't need it. I'll supply you what you need insofar as I can, but not what you want. But he takes care of our need, not just spiritually. How he does it, I dare not say. When he does it, I dare not say. He has his way. But he cares about our need. From the heavens, Christ ministers himself to us as food, as our life supply, in the way of dispensing. So that's what was happening in that prison in Philippi. That's what was happening 
in the storm, in the shipwreck. That's what was happening when Paul was martyred. The dispensing, the supply. That supply enabled John to live well into his 90s. You think that was easy? The losses he experienced, the degradation he had to confront, being exiled by the Roman Empire in his 90s. But there's a supply, and our testimony is this. For whatever the Lord arranges, the supply is always sufficient. But I acknowledge certain things that he arranges or that he allows are not easy to take. Humanly, how can they be? They involve such loss, such suffering, such uncertainty. We don't have to pretend. We can come to the Lord just as we are. But there is a supply in the way of dispensing, which is a gradual imparting. The Lord is not going to flood you. He's not going to overwhelm you. He's going to continually, in small amounts, apply himself to you. As our minister, Christ, as our minister takes care of our needs, he carries out God's economy. Here we see the Lord is aware of something that we cannot be aware of. That is the connection between what you are experiencing and what God wants to accomplish in his economy. We, we can't see this yet. Why did so-and-so sustain such a loss? I received another email from a brother I'm caring for. His wife, who was only turning 56, went to be with the Lord three months ago. He's only 58. How to go on? How to go on in that situation? There's a great need he has, his daughter has, his son has. The Lord ministers to that. But the Lord and only the Lord knows how that loss and that suffering is connected to God's economy. But in our spirit, in this particular case, there's the faith to believe that dear sister, Claudette Hughes was a grain of wheat who fell into the ground and died. And we will see the fruit in resurrection one day. So only the Lord as the omnipotent God can see the connection between our need and God's economy. So he ministers to our need, both to meet our need and to carry out God's economy. So eventually, we'll be able to pray. At first, we can't. But eventually, we'll be able to pray, Lord, care for me in this situation. Not only for me. This is a body matter. This is a body matter. Take care of the need in your body. 
Two, whatever Christ carries out as the heavenly minister, he applies to us as the spirit. The supply we need comes from the Christ who is both the Lord in the heavens and the spirit within us. Now we may experience him in all his functions as the ascended one. In all the, yes, all the aspects. You don't have to figure out which one do you pray for, which aspect do you need right now. We don't know. We don't need to know. He knows. Just let him be whatever he knows we need him to be. The transmission causes us to experience all his functions. As the heavenly minister, he transmits what we need from God the Father, who is the source, into our spirit to supply and sustain us. I'm glad this point mentions the Father, because there are certain matters the Son defers to the Father. And the Father wants us to ask him directly. And recently, I had a very real need. It's still with me. It's human. And I felt I needed to talk to the Father and say, Father, you know what I need. I bring this to you. I commit this to you. And I believe that somehow the Father, through the Son, as the Spirit, will meet the need for my sake and for the sake of the body. Three, in his heavenly ministry, as the minister of the two tabernacle, Christ is serving God's people with the bequests, the blessings of the New Testament. He knows that we are the beneficiaries of a will. This is if an unknown relative of yours passed away and you discover you're left this fortune in there as a bequest, you have the right to it. But if you don't know about the will and you don't know what's in there, you may go your whole life without ever claiming your bequest. But eventually you get a notice and you come to a reading of the will and there's an executor there and someone saying, my job is to carry out what is in this will and you just need to know that you have the right to receive $200,000 every year for the rest of your life. And when you finish your course, your children and grandchildren will continue to receive that until they finish their life. Now, you don't have to plead for that. Please, may I have $50? Please, please may I have something for my son's university tuition? You don't have to beg. You just say amen, hallelujah. <laughs> so the Lord knows there's a will. He also knows that we don't have that much realization of it. And he doesn't blame us. He wants to alert us and apply to us all that's there. As our heavenly minister with a more excellent ministry, 
Christ is carrying out the better covenant. He does this by making the facts of the new covenant effective. For instance, God must forget your sins. That's in the, that's in the will. He must. He must forgive and he must forget. Whether he likes you or not right now, whether he's happy with me or not right now, you are bound by the will to forgive me. I'm admitting I did it. No, I'm not pleading with you. I'm claiming forgiveness and forgetfulness. How you can forget, I don't know. But sometimes the enemy drives us, we confess something, then he attacks us and says, you didn't confess thoroughly, you got to do it again. Then we do it again. Eventually, they'll become at least one time an experience the Lord will say, what, what, are, what are you talking about? What do, you, what do you mean? I don't know of anything. I'm not aware of anything. Will you just enjoy me instead of whining about this? I forgot everything. I forgot. God forgets. Amen. Amen. We have the right to the tree of life. Revelation 22, 14. Not blessed are those who never get their robes dirty. Blessed are those who wash their robes. They have the right to the tree of life. We have the right to enjoy the Lord. Every fact in the new covenant is made effective by the heavenly minister with his more excellent ministry. So he knows he can assess the general situation over the whole recovery. Is that overall we're not that aware of the bequests. So we're missing out on a lot of blessings that could be ours day by day. So he's aware of this, and he doesn't send a messenger to say, you know, you dummies, don't you realize what's in there? That's not the way he treats us, to berates us. He would say, look, I'm going to keep ministering to make this real to you until you are leaping and dancing for joy in your living room because you realize you are an heir together with my son. Amen. B, whatever is a fact in the new covenant is a bequest in the New Testament. Christ, the heavenly minister, is executing the bequest in the New Testament. Finally, in his heavenly ministry, Christ as the high priest is interceding for us. Christ is a high priest undertakes our case by interceding for us. He appears before God on our behalf and prays for us that we may be saved to the uttermost and brought fully into God's eternal purpose. Christ can save us to the uttermost because he is living not only in the heavens but also in us. He is living in the heavens to intercede for us and take care of our case. But the reality of this is transmitted into our spirit by his spirit. While he is living in the heavens, he is transmitting himself into us. We need to see a vision of Christ in his heavenly ministry and learn to experience and enjoy him as our high priest. Amen. 
So please take a minute, and I would suggest you pray with someone nearby over point C. Then we'll have some sharing for a considerable period of time. Amen. Amen.